0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Maya guarnieri Jaradat about her new book, The Unchosen The Lives of Israel's New Others. In this book, guarnieri Jaradat offers her readers an intimate, often devastatingly gloom portrait of the lives of South Asian migrant workers and African asylum seekers in Israel. Maya guarnieri Jaradat, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about the background for writing the book. Your own personal story is weaved into the more general story you are telling. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should start by asking what brought you to Israel in the first place?
1: Yeah. um, You know, I I can't say that I went to Israel for, for any other reason than that I could, um, I was working on my master's thesis um, in creative writing, master's of fine arts in creative writing, um, and it was fiction. And I was just kind of looking for a place where I could uh, spend a lot of time writing. Um, I wasn't even writing about Israel, um, but it was very easy for me as a um, Jew from the diaspora to, to go to Israel, you know. It's, it's very much facilitated for, for diaspora Jews to go and spend um, extended periods of time there so Mm -hmm. i've always also kind of had this social justice thing going so i went to volunteer um i chose a program that would allow me to volunteer in in jaffa that was actually my original program. and then um Mm -hmm. and then when i got to when i got to israel um i saw the situation in south tel aviv and kind of jaffa evaporated from my mind Um, and I got involved in, um, you know, the issues of actually, it was the Southeast Asian migrant workers that I was really more involved in, in the beginning. I, what actually brought me to the issue of, of the migrant workers though, and the African asylum seekers were the kindergartens, the black market kindergartens in South Tel Aviv. Um, Mm -hmm. and I started volunteering in a black market kindergarten. Um, and You know, it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I got involved in journalism as a way to advocate for these groups. Um, At some point, I have to say, I kind of gave up on advocating. Like, the situation is is so bleak there now. Um, I don't Uh think that there's much of a possibility of of changing it, to be honest. Um, With this book, I was actually just setting out to document, period. I mean, to document, to preserve for the sake of history, for the sake of people to read now what's happening. Um, I don't know.
0: Yes. So first of all, um, maybe we should make a note that uh, we're hearing in the background, another creation of mothers, their newborn baby.
1: Yeah.
0: So you've moved from um, an interest in the obvious other of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the other others, as I think you put it in the book also, those who don't usually fall under the headlights of uh, um, foreigners looking... Into Israel, this, are, this is a group that largely goes unseen. Mm-hmm. Your encounter with them was largely accidental. I wouldn't uh, I would say.
1: Well, yeah, so the, so the volunteer program that, that I was taking part in um, you know, they, they had um, contacts with an organization called Mesila in South Tel Aviv. and uh, through Messilah, you know they would place volunteers in these black market kindergartens. Um, I'd already committed to volunteer in Jaffa. And, um, the program required that we, we at least see our other options to get a sense of the, um, internal issues, you know, facing Israeli society. So I kind of went with this attitude, yeah, okay, whatever. Like I know what I'm here to do. And I'd read Edward Said, you know what I mean? Kind of naive in a way, really. And then I saw this black market kindergarten in South Tel Aviv and I was just devastated by what I saw there. Um, You know, the black market kindergartens exist um, because of a vacuum or a hole in government policy. Um, The children are migrant workers and uh, African asylum seekers are not recognized by the government. Um, They're recognized by the Ministry of Education. So at the age of three, they can start attending the municipal uh, daycares or kindergartens. But before Mm -hmm. the age of three, you know, they're not recognized. Um, The Ministry of Welfare doesn't recognize their parents. So the parents can't get help with daycare like an Israeli citizen uh, can. You know, an Israeli citizen, if they can't afford to send their child to a black market kindergarten, um, the Ministry of Welfare will kick in and give some subsidies so the the parents can work and the child can have appropriate daycare in a a regulated, you know, safe place. Um, It's not so for, for the children of migrant workers and African asylum seekers. Those parents have to send their children to these. Unreg- unregulated, illegal um, daycares, and, you know, babies and children have died in these places. So the first one I saw was, you know, a couple dozen children, one caregiver, um, you know, she couldn't keep up with, with that many children. They were infants and toddlers both, um, and, and being the mother of a, of a newborn and a toddler, I can't keep up with two. I, I don't know how she she kept up with two dozen. Um but but that's the point they can't so they'll they'll keep the children you know maybe diapered and fed um and that's about it um, <clears throat> I interviewed once I was involved in this issue as a journalist, I interviewed a woman in South Tel Aviv who, at one time a Nigerian woman who at one time, had forty children in her care and said that you know she actually couldn't actually keep up with feeding them all that there there were times that the children weren't getting enough food. Um, Because she just couldn't keep up. So, you know, the first black market kindergarten I saw, it was just like a cement room that the woman was living in also. And, you know, she slept Uh there by night. And by day, she had children there. There were no toys, really. There was nothing. And I was just utterly shocked by what I saw. Um, Utterly unprepared for it.
0: Maybe you can give us a more general uh, breakdown of the uh, communities you've uh, uh, covered in the, in your book. Uh, these are not uh, homogeneous in their origins or their status. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, who they are?
1: Yeah. So in the book, um, I, look, I concentrate on Filipino workers in Israel and African asylum seekers in Israel. Now, the Filipino workers in Israel are, are part of a larger subset of um, migrant workers in Israel. Um, Filipinos just happen to be the largest group. The Filipino workers um, represent the largest group of migrant workers in Israel. Um, but you know there are also Indian workers. There are Nepalese. There are Eastern Europeans. You know from Romania. Um, there's many different sorts of migrant workers in Israel. And then as far as the African asylum seekers, we're really talking about two populations. We're talking about Eritreans and Sudanese. And the Eritreans Hmm. have fled, you know, a brutal dictatorship, never-ending national service. And the Sudanese have left war and genocide. We're talking about genocide in Darfur. So these are two really distinct populations. The migrant workers are distinct from the African asylum seekers. um, But they're the same in that, you know, they're they're both non-Jews in the Jewish state. Uh,
0: What is the legal status of the two groups?
1: So, migrant workers that come to the country legally come on a uh, 63-month visa. In the case of caregivers, um, those visas are often renewed. And, you know, most Filipinos that come to the country come as caregivers. So, you might have a Filipino worker who has stayed there legally for 15, 20 years. You might have one who's come um, for, you know, on a 63-month visa and then has lost the visa because... If she's a woman, if the migrant worker is a woman, um, there are rules against having babies in Israel. Um, so they they would be subject to losing their visa for having a child in the country and wanting to keep the child in the country with them. So, you know, she would not have legal status in that instance. So migrant workers come on 63-month visas. You know, typically, say, a Thai, uh, a Thai agric- agricultural laborer will not stay more than than the length of their visa, um, though sometimes they do, you know, then as far as African asylum seekers, <clears throat> they are on what's known as a conditional release visa, so when they first entered the country, they, they are, they're held for a period, um, arbitrary, it was in the past an arbitrary period of detention, when they were released, they were given conditional release, um, and it's a visa that they have to renew, you know, every few months. Um, it stipulates that they're not allowed to work in the country. Now, of course, these people have to work to survive. So um, you know they work black market jobs. Um, they work illegally, and the state kind of turns a blind eye to it um, for the most part. And uh, and that's yeah, that's the legal status.
0: Beyond beyond the the blind eye uh, sent to the well towards the african uh, asylum seekers israel's policy towards the legally arriving migrant workers as you mentioned with the well the practical prohibition on uh, procreation or at least the punishment for procreation uh, is quite complicated uh, to say the least can you describe how the state uh, regulates or um, uh, what uh, state policies are implemented towards those uh, migrant workers
1: Well, yeah, I also want to mention um, it's important to mention more than the prohibition on having children in the state, uh, migrant workers are also not allowed to have romantic relationships. So Mm -hmm. if migrant workers are caught in a romantic relationship, uh, one or both might face deportation. Um, So that's really important to mention. Um, As far as the caregivers, the regulation has become increasingly complicated. Um, They're now... In the past, they were subject to something called the binding arrangement, which meant that they were bound to a particular employer. Their legal status was bound to a particular employer. So, if say they got fired, or they quit, or their employer died, their legal status would be at risk. Now they're subject to something uh, known as geographic binding. So they get a visa for a particular region, and they're they're kind of confined to working in that particular region. Um, They can only have three employers. Um, So, you know, if you have bad luck and you get one bad employer, fine. You can change without losing your visa. But if you get three bad employers, then, you know, oh, well. You're stuck dealing with that third bad employer. um, If you want to keep your visa, that is. So the the restriction, it it constitutes a sort of restriction on freedom of movement, you know. Um, Whereas before... Employers were given a, a disproportionate amount of power over their caregivers um, because you know they had control over their legal status now the caregiver or now the caregiver, even if it can change employers it's, it's stuck to a particular region um, so it remains just as restrictive
0: so I can imagine a reader of your book uh, nodding in agreement with your uh, uh, criticism of the situation, but then justifying it in a sense by saying, well, that's just another case, you know, quote unquote, just another case of a global phenomena that we're witnessing of um, immigration from poor countries to countries that are better off.
1: Yeah, from the global south Um, to the global north. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that that I I found fascinating about this topic is that it at once offers us You know, on the one hand, because it's playing out in Israel, it is specific to Israel. And because migrant workers were brought to replace Palestinian day laborers, it does actually speak to the conflict on the one hand. On the other hand, to me, um, Israel functions very much like a, a petri dish, if you will, or a case study of the issues that come with globalization. So we can learn about both the conflict as well as, you know, these, these issues of globalization by looking at the status of, of non-Jewish foreigners in Israel.
0: So what is uh, specifically Israeli about the phenomena?
1: Well, I mean, okay, so we've got... One of the biggest issues, I think, that these non-Jewish foreigners face in Israel is that the state defines itself as, as Jewish and, and democratic also, right? And in order to... Uh, Maintain the democratic part of the equation. It's got to keep that Jewish majority, so The state is uh, you know attempting to maintain the hegemony of uh, a particular group that of Jews And so if you are you know not falling into that group, then then you're going to have some problems in the state Um, So, you know, it's Israeli in that sense that it's about these people being non-Jews in the Jewish state but like, mm-hmm. you know, again, like if German if Germany defines itself in a particular way, if the U.S. defines itself in a particular way, whoever f- falls outside uh, the parameters of that definition, they're going to face troubles, too. So, again, it's kind of like it's it's particular to Israel in a way, but also not particular. Um, now, nice. with regards to the conflict, you know, migrant workers were brought to replace Palestinian day laborers. Um. Mm-hmm. As Israel began to kind of ratchet up its restrictions on freedom of movement or as it began to, um, you could say, uh, seek to better control the movement of um, Palestinians from the territories and the day laborers were coming from the territories um, from Gaza and the West Bank, um, you know, it found that it needed some uh, it had a a sudden shortage of workers. And so it started to to look abroad um, for other workers. You know, and, and right away, um, government officials identified that this could be problematic as far as maintaining the Jewish majority. Um, you had government officials saying in the early 90s that migrant workers would, would be a problem because they, they stay in Israel, whereas the Palestinian day laborers went home at night. So mm-hmm. there were concerns right away that this group would stay, that they would maybe have children and that they would start to kind of um, threaten that demographic majority that is so crucial to maintaining both the Jewish and democratic um, element mm-hmm. of the
0: state. I see. And uh, I think we sh- maybe we should mention that there's a third group of uh, non-Jews in Israel. I mean, if we count the migrant workers and asylum seekers together and... Then uh, the Palestinian Arabs, citizens of Israel, who both uh, constitute the largest group of non-Jews in Israel. Of course. They're also the non-Jews citizens of Israel, largely those arriving from uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, Yeah. And the difference in states' policies towards these three groups is striking, I believe. Uh,
1: that would be a much um, the state larger, has... larger, much, much longer book <laughs> to teach
0: <about. laughs> Yes. To tea
1: about I agree. Of, of all three, you know? And then, yeah. you know, add to the mix. You mentioned the um, the immigrants who came from the former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Add to the mix that there are also illegal immigrants from, from the former Soviet Union. There's something like 90,000 in Israel today. And I didn't even get to mm-hmm. those people um, mm-hmm. and how the mm-hmm. state does or doesn't deal with them. Yes.
0: So, I, I, mean, and I obviously agree that's uh, far beyond the scope of your uh, immediate discussion, but I think what, uh, the light that it sheds on your case study is that the state has never thought of uh, coping with this group of non-Jews by trying to Judaize them as it does with uh, citizens who immigrated to Israel legally, let's say, let's focus on this group, uh, thanks to their remote relationship to Jews from, uh, in the application of the law of return. I think it's interesting to see how the hand, uh, the, the state is uh, welcoming migrant workers with one hand, obviously to solve the problem with uh, the Palestinian uh, workers you mentioned, and then uh, strongly pushes them with the other hand, putting them in a very uh, liminal situation.
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's business uh, interests involved. You know, I should mention um, briefly, um, and I talk about it at length in the book about the manpower agencies mm-hmm. that are involved in the de- uh, the importation of migrant workers to Israel and that make money off of the head of each new worker that comes in. So there are interests involved in deporting, you know, keeping that revolving door going Um, with each one that enters the country. Someone's making money, you know, and deporting means that it's making space to bring more new workers. So,
0: yes. And now let's try and shift the focus just a bit. And Can you tell us uh, a few words of how this phenomena, how this picture looks uh, from the point of view of uh, the Israeli residents of South Tel Aviv, where your uh, cohort of uh, 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 people um, largely reside?
1: Yeah, that's a really important um, element to the story. And I think that I want to say that um, I'm uncomfortable with how that aspect of things has been covered because... Look, on the one hand, you go to South Tel Aviv, and people are using not very nice language to talk about the African asylum seekers. Um, oftentimes, the language is racist. And then, you know, you might have foreign or local media even going, in, and, you know, they they, they, they kind of drop down on South Tel Aviv. Uh, they come with a the camera. They say, oh, look, these people are racist. Oh, look, they're calling them, you know, not nice words, uh, stuff like this. And that's an overly simplistic look at the problem in South Tel Aviv, because Mm -hmm. South Tel Aviv, um, you know, as residents of South Tel Aviv say, it's the backyard of Tel Aviv. um, It's representative of the development towns on the periphery of the country, right? And that it's poor, Mm -hmm. and that it's neglected, and that a majority of the residents are Mizrahim. The problems there are deep. The problems have existed since the, the state was founded. People there are already uh, have very justifiable grievances. Now, I think what has kind of gone wrong in South Tel Aviv is that the the anger that the residents feel and their grievances have been kind of channeled towards the African asylum seekers. They've kind of become the locus for it all, which is a pity because you know I think that there are are people in South Tel Aviv that could organize and, and maybe bring forth a very uh, powerful, um, you know, political movement that would, that would question the status quo in Israel, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's, that's not materializing. I guess it's kind of that divide and conquer thing you see. So in South Tel Aviv, which is the, the heart of the foreign community, both migrant workers and African asylum seekers, this is the heart of their community. Um, the residents, the, the veteran residents are, are less than thrilled about the influx of this new group. Um, the veteran residents are themselves a needy population. And then, you know, you have the influx of African asylum seekers that, that are a very needy population. Um, these people don't have legal status. You know, they're, they're working illegally. Um, the state doesn't deal with their their applications for asylum. The state doesn't deal with their applications in an appropriate way. It doesn't process them as it ought to. Really, only a tiny, tiny handful of people have gotten um, refugee status in Israel. So, you know, the rest of the asylum seekers don't have status, which means they don't have benefits. They don't have health care. You know, they have to send their children to these horrible, you know, black market kindergartens, so on and so forth. Um, So the population is very needy. And then you're also talking about you know, a lot of these asylum seekers are, are suffering from symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, they've been through a war. They've escaped genocide. Um, some of them have been kidnapped um, in the Sinai and, you know, held for ransom and, and tortured by Bedouin traffickers. And so then they arrive to South Tel Aviv, you know, with, a, with its own mess of problems, and, uh, and they're not getting the help that they need. Um, and maybe some of them do start drinking, and maybe they are out in the streets drinking because, you know, otherwise they're they're twelve to a tiny apartment. So who wants to sit, you know, in the heat in a tiny apartment? Um, so no, then maybe they go out in the streets and drink because they're struggling with the symptoms of their their trauma. And then you know, to the residents of South Tel Aviv, they go, oh, look, the streets are full and they're drinking, and da da da. And we feel threatened. um they do often phrase it in a racist way, but, but they, they do feel threatened. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the government has to, in my opinion, needs to do something about that other than in sight. The government has just kind of written off the residents' legitimate concerns and, and says, oh, well, look, it's, it's the problem of the Africans. It's the infiltrators. It's not us, you know.
0: Well, Maya, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, can you tell us uh, what you're currently working on?
1: I am currently working on something very different. Um, I taught at a Palestinian university in the West Bank, and, um, I also ended up moving to the West Bank, um, not to a settlement, but to, uh, Bethlehem in area A, which is under the Palestinian authority. And I lived in Bethlehem and worked at the Palestinian university and also my, my partner's Palestinian. So I'm working on a memoir now about my, my time living in Bethlehem, um, and about what that was like you know, as a uh, American Jew who holds Israeli citizenship um, about what that kind of meant for me to live there, to bear witness, um, to pass through checkpoints, so on and so forth. Mm
0: -hmm. Maya, that sounds like a a fascinating project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. And thank you for listening. Uh, Please make sure to check out Other interviews in our newly established Israel Studies channel in newbooksnetwork.com.